A special episode, Sholem Dolgoy's Retirement. Welcome back to the Title Block, the show about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And as always, I am your host, Michael Cruz. And on this episode, we return once again to a conversation with lighting designer Sholem Dolgoy. Now, my goodness, it has been exceedingly busy for me this fall, so I apologize for the long gap from Susan Benson to now, but I wanted to bring you a conversation that I recorded live uh, in September with Sholem Dolgoy. Uh, We spoke to Sholem back on episode 13 of the show, and he, uh, if you remember the show, was a mentor to me and hundreds of others at Ryerson Theatre School since the early 1980s. Uh, in this event, held at Ryerson Main Stage on September 23rd, we hear from Dr. Ira Levine, former Dean of the Faculty of Communication and Design and founding chair of the School of Creative Industries at Ryerson, who lauds Sholem's many years shaping new technicians and designers and his particular style of mentorship. The ceremony is open with a call to order of the proceedings by Alex Gilbert, who teaches costume building and cutting and is a longtime colleague of Sholem. We finish with a discussion between Sholm and I where we recap his career and talk about what is important to include in the training of new technical theater artists. Now please enjoy this conversation with myself and Sholem Dolgai on the eve of his retirement. Welcome everybody. I am your host for the evening, Sholem 2.0. This is an, as much as we are here to celebrate the career in, of Sholem Dolgoy, this is also an evening to celebrate the Ryerson Theatre School and School of Performance community. Welcome. We have alumni here and colleagues here from all decades of uh, Sholem's teaching career. There's going to be a reception afterwards here on the stage. We encourage everyone to mingle. Uh, A couple housekeeping uh, tips here. Uh, Name tags. Everyone is expected to wear a name tag. If you do not have a chance to get a name tag in the lobby, there will be a a possibility to do it here at the um, uh, reception. Um, Please feel feel free to find the original Sholem. He will be located at center center on a spike tape. or near the carrots at the food table. <laughs> to keep the train of knowledge running and fun, fun, running smoothly and to sure, be sure that this evening gets a grade of A plus, plus, minus, plus, minus, here's this evening's schedule. At 1940, Ira Levine is going to come up and speak. 1950, we are going to have a video and chat. 2005, you're going to have an interview. Uh, 2035, there will be a finale. 2045, the reception on this stage will begin. Um, There will be carrots and chocolate and some light snacks, and it is a cash-only bar. Very important. 2100 hours, uh, the bar over on uh, Young and Gould will open. It's the warehouse on the third floor. 2200 hours, which is 10 o'clock. 
um, the party here has to end. And um, here's Sholem Dogoy. So the, sur the surrealness of this event struck me as I was preparing class lists from 1985 to 2019. And they are in the hallway outside for you to take a look at. And I, we couldn't get the ones from prior to that because the database just didn't, ha just didn't have them. But it's a sobering thing to think that in 1979, maybe in the fall or early 1980, I got a call from Sandy Black to come and teach here and blink, it's 40 years later. Uh, so I feel that we all stand on each other's shoulders. And uh, this community, which is why it was so important for me to reach out to people, and I thank everyone so much. We have people who I think flew in today from Winnipeg. Uh, we have people who came from Pittsburgh. Uh, some people couldn't come. Many people expressed their regrets for not being able to come. Um, but I think we all stand on each other's shoulders and we are this amazing community uh, that are, if you go anywhere on this continent, anywhere in this world, you will find people from this school. So I don't think it's the school that makes the person, it's the school that attracts the quality candidates. And I think that that is writ large in terms of all the people who are here and all the people who couldn't make it. Let's see, make sure that I don't miss anything that I want to say. So. Um, I have had the privilege of teaching the children of people that I taught, <laughs> which, which was very, very sobering to say the least. And when the dad came to check out the school, stuck his head in the door of Abrams, where I was teaching, I think, a first-year class, and said, new students in the front, same old guy at the front. Same old guy talking to them. Now, he claims he didn't say old, but I think it makes for a much better story. <laughs> uh, so I'd like to bring on Ira Levine, who uh, most of you know either as the chair of the program, the director of the, uh, the dean of the school, of the, of the, the uh, faculty, or most likely as the history teacher. How many, pe how many people didn't have Ira Levine as a history teacher? Yeah, exactly, okay? <laughs> So Ira, if you could come on and chat for a minute, that would be just great. There's the X. Is the mic on? Okay. Well, it's wonderful seeing so many of uh, Sholem's former students, my former students as well, uh, here tonight. So, uh, so welcome. Um, You've heard Sholem say that he's been, he started teaching here at, at uh, Ryerson Theater School and now the School of Performance virtually 40 years ago. I started reflecting about that. I mean, that, when you think about it, that's a pretty extraordinary duration. I mean, how many theater gigs last 40 years? <laughs> 
And so I, I went back a little into history just for comparative purposes. Well, there was Shakespeare at the Lord Chamberlain's Men, uh, which changed into the King's Men. But even there, it was a mere 22 years. And then I thought about another um, famous theatrical duration. James O'Neill, father of Eugene O'Neill, immortalized as James Tyrone in, in O'Neill's great play, Long Day's Journey Into Night. And James O'Neill, James Tyrone, um, were famous for the production of um, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, James Tyrone had the lead in that show. He played it 6,000 times. But that only took 30 years. So again, just doesn't compare to Sholem's time teaching uh, for us here at Ryerson. And um, his sustained record of teaching excellence over that period of time is truly extraordinary. Um, now, so Sholem came here as a part-time teacher, and there came a time when he was keen to move into the, um, the ranks of full-time uh, tenured faculty. The only problem was he had a diploma from the National Theatre School, not a bad credential at all. It could open many doors. But at that time, this was um, now well into the 1990s, Ryerson was transitioning from a, um, well, whatever it was, a polytechnic institute at Polytechnic University into a full university, a full comprehensive university, and a, an NTS diploma was just not going to cut it for, for a permanent faculty position. And so um, I was in the dean's office at the time, and, and Sholem came to see me, and, and we talked about his aspiration to enter into a master's program, because that was the minimum requirement. He had a pretty clear idea of what he wanted to do uh, in terms of a master's thesis, which was going to be very, very, uh, a very valuable study. The challenge was getting into York without a bachelor's degree. So I recall getting on the phone to the dean of graduate studies at York, fully prepared to try to sell that dean on Shalom's merits. In fact, it turned out to be a, a very, very easy sell. Uh, the folks at York, and certainly within his, graduate, his future graduate program at York, were, um, they were well aware of, uh, of Shalom's reputation, both um, as, a, as a teacher, but also, of course, as a theater professional. And they were only too happy to accept him into the graduate program where he did a, a splendid job, got the master's degree, got his tenured position, and uh, became a tenured prof professor. I don't recall exactly when it was, but it was uh, sometime around uh, the turn of, um, of the century. <laughs> the, the 21st century, <laughs> just to be clear on that. Now back to 1980, when Sholem began teaching at Ryerson. The production program provided a, a diploma after three years. A darn good diploma, but still a diploma. 
And this was the case uh, when I joined Ryerson in 1987 as well. Since then, of course, the production program has evolved, like the other programs in the theater school and the School of Performance, into its current status as a four-year BFA program with a number of curricular overhauls to keep pace with the changing demands of industry. And Sholem has been instrumental and indeed a primary driver of the changes needed to maintain the currency of our teaching and our courses over all that time. And this work suggests a truism of Sholem's career as an educator. To put it simply, for Sholem, students always came first. Sholem really cares. He has always cared about his charges and has always showed a great deal of patience while mentoring them, you, and guiding them through the difficult challenges that they may have faced. Now, speaking of, of Sholem's students, I figured that this occasion was a good time, really my last chance, to solve a mystery that has baffled me for quite some time, namely, what does it mean to be Sholemized? <laughs> A term I've, heard, I've overheard students to use over the years, but never quite understood. So I did some research. And I think I've gotten to the bottom of it. Being Sholemized, is, in short, I probably don't have to tell you, being questioned about a plan down to every minute detail. <laughs> now here's a description of how that worked from one alumnus, who will remain anonymous, <laughs> contacted expressly for the purpose of this research. I once worked on a show that was renting projectors. So Sholem's questions would start with, is the projector bright enough? Does it have the right inputs? But it would progress to, will the bolts on the projector mounts line up with the projector? And will the clamps on the mount fit around our pipes? So there we have it. And I suspect many of you here this evening have had similar experiences of being Sholemized. <laughs> to call Sholem detail-oriented is an understatement. <laughs> Inhabiting the office next to Sholem these last few years, I can attest to the amount of detail spread all over his office. <laughs> Floor, ceilings, you got it. But seriously, Sholem's acute attention to detail in his teaching, together with his curricular work and his ongoing concern for the welfare and professional readiness of his students, is very much a part of his legacy. These complement another part of that legacy and the most enduring part, namely the great many designers, stage managers, and so many other production professionals who have entered and departed his classrooms for active careers in the performing arts. That's a legacy 
worthy of our highest regard and our collective appreciation. Thank you. I did have a little more. Um, Sholem, come on out. We're going to have our video and uh, chat now. So I, we're going to enter a segment here, and I'm going to say something I thought I would never, ever say, and perhaps some of you thought you would never say. I'm going to thank an architect. <laughs> And, and if, if things have gone well, is Mike with us today? Did Mike, was Mike able to make it? I guess not. So uh, Mike Smith was the architect for our new home in the Student Learning Center in the basement, which unfortunately we can't go and see because the week before classes started, uh, there was a flood of whatever and um, this much water, I'm told, and all the water got under the dance floors that had to be ripped up, and the drywall had to be ripped off of here so high, and it's, it's a construction site. Um, but particularly for those who have done the, the um, warehouse project in the TD course, anybody did that project? Yeah, a couple people. So this was that project writ large, but in real time. And it turned out that Mike, the architect, Kara, the uh, project manager, and Grant de Bruges, who was from uh, the university, were our guardian angels, even though at the time they were the enemy. But in retrospect, they fully supported us. So a little, yeah, so a little bit of the backstory. Um, the building was falling apart. 44 Gerard was falling apart, as we all know. Um, when people, when dancers were dancing in Graham or whichever one, McAllister, the termites would fall on the cutting tables for those from the previous era. So people from the early years, were termites always in the building? Okay, so termites came later. Uh, there, was a f there, there, was a, there was a flood in the basement, and Perry, the former chair, and then Peggy, the then current chair, made you know, lots of appeals. Can we fix the building? Can we fix the building? And then we were told, I missed that meeting, fortunately, uh, that, um, that we were being moved to the, to the basement of the Student Learning Center, but we couldn't tell anybody, and that we were going to be out in like nine months or something. They were going to build a facility for us. And so we went on our first... Uh, process where we said kind of our aspirations, what each room required. And the, the construct was that we were not to get anything over and above than what we already had at 44. That's, that's going to come up a little bit later. And so the, the unbeknownst to us, the management had gone through the building and looked at it and said, oh, a couple of decrepit dance studios, what could it cost? <laughs> And they were going to put us in what had been a food court, big open space. So they told me this, and at the first meeting I was at, I said, so what's your budget? And they said, seven million, and I laughed at them. 
And then I said, and what's your timeline? Oh, we're going to do it in nine months. And I said, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, we have somebody who's done Gantt charts. It's all going to happen. Um, so that didn't happen. But we started, <laughs> we started our process of uh, figuring out what, what each room needed. And the first meeting took three hours. And that was the box office. <laughs> So slowly, we as a group, with me kind of being the jerk at the table, started taking over the process in terms of delivering information to them. And I did many, many drawings to be able to, to show them what this room, what this building should be or shouldn't be. The architect was never allowed to talk to us. The architect didn't even go into our existing building to see what it was, what we were using to find out what was going to be transferred. His first layout was done solely on square footage, and he actually did quite well, other than the lighting lab was eight feet wide and 40 feet long, which didn't, <laughs> didn't quite work. So at the next meeting, I came in with a revised set of drawings and started taking over, started sort of getting a seat at the table because I was speaking with drawings, which was the only process that they would understand. Uh, the big deal that happened was the, for those, uh, oh, actually, let's do, the, let's do the slides now, sorry. Let's do the slides. So here's our fabulous new wardrobe. Uh, Alex Gilbert did the layout. She, did, she made little cutouts. I gave her little cutouts, and she did a paper doll, the whole thing. And we took a picture of it, and we showed it to, the, to the, the building people, and they were very impressed with that. Next picture, please. Lots of sewing machines, as there should be. This is the lighting lab. So it's uh, a really, really nice room for those who've had a chance to go to it. Uh, the theater consultants, who also we were not allowed to talk to, uh, when, but we did a back channel thing. When they came up, their jaws dropped. I obsessed about every inch of this room surprise. Uh, I, I even did the sprinkler layout. <laughs> because how often have you been hooped by the sprinklers? <laughs> OK, next slide, please. So um, we are no longer the theater museum. Okay, that building is probably the best equipped small theater in the city with, in terms of LED technology and control, uh, and audio as well. Okay, next one. Uh, this is the famous box office that took forever. You can take a look at it. It's across the street from the warehouse. And I think that's our last slide. Yeah, okay. Um, so. The big dilemma, of course, was mechanical. Uh, big empty space. I walked in the first time, and there was an air supply on one side and air return on the other. And I said, oh boy, because we're going to chop it up into all these little spaces. And as it turned out, so their $7 million budget all in turned into about $14 million. And 40% 40, 40 of that was for mechanical. And so the big move that had to be solved was the, oh, um, did we not have pictures of the booth? Yeah, let's go back, let's go back and look at the booth. Uh, are we up on screen? One sec. Okay. So here we go. So, and there should be a reverse shot from the, um, there we are. So the booth, so everybody remembers the booths in the studio theater. For most of the people, it's called Abrams, but from a previous generation, not so, you know, you wouldn't know that. Um, tiny little cramped space. We are now the, the you know, the, the control of the Starship Enterprise. 
in terms of space and all that kind of stuff. There's a, pro pro you know, a proper audio room with windows, can see over, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that we need. So I was concerned that we needed, I needed height for the lighting lab. I wanted 10 feet. We had 28 feet total. So um, I know I wanted 10 feet for the lighting lab. And uh, then uh, that left the rest of the space. I had to conjecture, because we weren't allowed to talk to the architects, how much space the mezzanine slab would take, how much mechanical would take up, and then figure out what the height to the grid would be, which we figured 12 feet was good, and where the staircase to the control booth would be, particularly for uh, wheelchair accessibility. And had to redesign uh, how the staircases worked in the slopes. And it's a good thing I did because the drawings that came out, and this is instructive for anybody who may end up in this situation. The drawings that, I, that, we, 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 that we got, the first set of drawings, the architects and engineers generally don't do sections, discovered. And everything was really vague except the staircase. And the staircase was de detailed down to the nth degree, and as I learned from a good friend of mine who's an architect, because stairs are really, really hard. And if I hadn't jumped in really early, then all the ergonomics of that, the sight lines of that room would, would not have worked out. So, and it was in that process that we got a seat at the table. And then it came to technology, because we were only supposed to have, we weren't supposed to get any more than what we had. So there I am at the table saying, so you're going to move us into a new building and give us 40-year-old technology. Scott, yeah. how many? <laughs> How, how many lines, uh, how many data lines did we plan and how many did we put in? Uh, we planned for about 350 and we ended up with about 280. So there's 280 lines of data in that room. Everything talks in the building, everything talks to everything else. It's truly modern technology. So back to we are no longer the theater museum, which is really good. Woo! Okay? I love you, Joel! <laughs> Is that Jim Rowe? Okay. <laughs> Hi, Jim Rowe. Okay. So. So. What's next? Michael Cruz is going to do an interview with Sholem, graduate, uh, paramedic, medical student, lighting designer, Renaissance man, <laughs> fabulous human being, uh, is and. Uh, Host of the the podcast Title Block. Welcome, Michael Cruz. Yeah. Hello. And hello. Oh, hello um, again. For a, for a longer form interview, you can always go to thetitleblock.com uh, and go to episode 13, where I spoke to Sholem uh, for about an hour uh, in, uh, over at 44 Gerard. Uh, and it's a great interview. I wish we could have spent two or three hours talking, but because uh, there's probably so much information but uh, we could cover. Right. Um, we did talk about your early career yeah. um, uh, in that podcast, but give us like a five minute, like how you got into theater. Like, why, like why theater? Why theater is a good idea. Uh, I think that's probably going to be very instructive for most of us. I think I was six or seven years old and my mom took me to, was probably the last 10 minutes of a show, probably at the Old Crest Theater on Mount Pleasant, if anybody knows about that. What is that on stage? Oh my God, right? That was my response, just absolutely mesmerized. And then through, uh, went to see shows. We were living in Ottawa, went to see ballet, theater, that kind of stuff, totally mesmerized. What is this? 
And when I hit high school, it was the only thing that really interested me. So like most of you ended up doing theater, was on the stage crew, doing shows. Um, more or less got parked in audio, but it was very, very simple. The lighting in that theater. <laughs> There was, there, was, there, was a time, there was a time when I thought I might do lighting and sound, but somehow it just faded away. I don't know, right? Um, uh, and so it was the only, theater was the only thing that really interested me in high school. I didn't feel I was university material. Uh, and um, so when I graduated, shortly after graduation, I got a job as the technician in uh, Carleton University's theater and the head technician was getting bored with the job. Uh, there was a very good drama club called Sock and Buskin uh, that had the, the enfants terribles of it, their time. Um, Sheldon probably knows all of them, so there was Tim Bond, uh, John Palmer, and the person who can't, the guy who ran Canadian stage, uh, Guy Sprung, Guy Sprung uh, were there. And their claim to fame, which was why I was so interested in working with them, is that they had advertised a thing called uh, 1001 Freudian Delights and uh, packed the theater, uh, green light, dim green light on stage, somebody scampered across the stage, may or may not have had clothing on, and then the audience waited, and nothing happened. And the drama club was desperate for money, and that was their fundraising tool. <laughs> so they got taken up on charges by the, and so I read about this in the newspaper, I said, I have to work with these people. <laughs> So uh, I ended up working there uh, and had this little theater with nobody to say no. So there were jazz, there was concerts, there was bad dance school. Anybody ever done bad dance school? Like, <laughs> um, and, and plays. So uh, I got to play, and it was fairly well equipped by somebody who was, uh, had a background in television. So there were joy plugs and state-of-the-art strand lighting pattern 23s. 264s, 123s, 49s for those who want to get nostalgic, and, a, and uh, an auto transformer board with a, with a patch panel. And so I got to play with all of that. Uh, one day there was a uh, notice in the tunnel saying audition to the National Theatre School. My mother had been bugging me, Ma, don't talk about that, it's fine. And suddenly I went, oh, maybe that's a good idea. So I did my application and got accepted, much to my surprise. So I, at that point, at that time, and Rob Thompson and I were talking about this today, I did a, had to do a full package. So much like the projects that the students do in first year, that was what you needed to do to get into the school. Three days later, it showed up, you're accepted, great. You know, I'm a little surprised, but wow, okay. Um, found out later that I almost didn't get accepted, that I almost, they almost didn't take me because they thought I knew too much. <laughs> yeah, that was like, really? And because and, I didn't think I knew too much at all. Um, but I knew more about teaching than they did because my, teacher, my parents were teachers. And I had done some tutoring in high school and said, wow, this feels really good but thought that if I'm going to be a teacher, I want to really, really know what I'm talking about. And so I want to learn my profession first. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, for more about the great and fantastic career that you've had, you can go right. to that episode. Yeah. Uh, so we won't cover much of that today. Right. Um, uh, Ryerson Theatre School, uh, but prior to the, the, when it was a university, right. um, had a well, it still has a fantastic reputation, but there was a reputation about a very specific type of training you got here. 
Um, and when you arrived in what, 1982? Here in 1980. 80. Yeah. Um, what was the state of the lighting program and how, um, first of all, how did you get hired? Uh, we can go, we talked about a little bit about that on the podcast, but um, tell us about that conversation with Sandy Black, uh, who at the time was the head of the theater school. Right, yeah. Um, um, actually, I'll go back a little bit. So uh, I arrived back in Toronto in 1973, and I'm working at Toronto Free Theater, which is now Berkeley Street. And um, so at that time, I hired some people. Bill tells me I hired. Uh, worked with people, so Brenda Clark, if she's here, Bruno Huckabard, Des Mackinoff, if everybody knows who Des Mackinoff is, those were all people who were at the school and they were doing, helping us do shows at Toronto Free Theatre. But the thing that really intrigued me, um, who he, anybody here had Peter Hiscox as a teacher? Okay, I just heard he died a year ago, which was very sad. So I got a call from him, could he come down and do a test? And I said, sure, and he came down and he blew up a speaker. <laughs> ran, I think, 120 volts through it with a microphone, and it's a cube, and recorded it, and then slowed it down so that people could hear what the reverb was in the room. And I thought, this is really cool. This is a very interesting school. And then uh, Sandy Black called me up because he, he needed people to have stagecraft experience. And I said, well, the only thing I've got is we need to move seating risers around. Is that okay? Free labor for me, and he said, oh yeah, sure, so people would show up, and we had all these big seating risers, and we would move them, and that would take 20 minutes, and then I'd say, okay, that's it, and everybody would go, really? So was anybody on those calls? Is there anybody in the room who was on those calls? Oh, good. Because <laughs> I, you know, I didn't think it was, it wasn't a great experience, but I had free labor to move the seating around. Um, so then I got a call from Sandy saying, would I come and teach lighting? And I'd done a tiny bit of teaching at Humber. I think I'd done a little bit of teaching at National Theatre School. But frankly, I think in retrospect, it was too soon. And I thought, it, you know, I'd had my checklist of all the things that I wanted to do. Teaching was one of them. But that came sooner than I thought. Uh, and so largely, I was making it up as I was going along. Um, but uh, should we go into philosophy, or do you want to? Uh, I, I was going to say that I, I couldn't tell you were making it up. We certainly. Okay. Well, by you the time you job. came along, I'd already kind of had some moves down. <clears throat> That's good, because, yes, because we were, yeah, I was there in the early 90s, so yeah. I think in 10 years you would learn something. Right. Uh, well, and, well, and to that point, so everybody knows about Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours? Okay, so in roughly about when I started teaching here, I was working more with lighting than I had. So I'd been a TD, PM, oh, by the way, doing the lighting design, because that's what I really wanted to do but had that split, and as you know, if anybody's worn those two hats, that when the, when the lighting designer, production manager under the same hat is faced with the choice, the production manager usually wins. And so I was now working for the National Ballet, working mainly in lighting and learning a huge amount because I was really, uh, as Peter McKinnon can attest, I was the accidental tourist at the National Ballet of Canada because I came from theater. Uh, but Dieter Penshorn, the then production manager, I'd worked for him, uh, I'd been the assistant at the opera company and been given three shows to light. One went well, one went okay, and one went horribly badly. <laughs> but he was impressed with how quickly I called up the channels and that, you know, could focus on those kinds of things and help solve a problem with the crew because the crew were fighting. And um, so he hired me to do that and I learned on the job, which was great. But that was my really, I think, the beginning of being a lighting designer as opposed to wearing many, many hats. 
And so the 10,000 hours, I think, is really true that when I look at the arc of my design career, it wasn't for another 10 years that I could feel comfortable saying I'm a lighting designer. And I even remember saying to a class who looked quite gobsmacked, well, when I grow up, I want to be a lighting designer. So there's the teacher saying that. It's like, so what does that mean? Um, but it, you know, that 10,000 hours to, to get there. And so that paralleled the teaching. And so in those early years, I think I had the idea of what I wanted to do, but not the, not the game plan really worked out as well as it became later. Um, it kind of begs the question of what, uh, what we need to teach people to become a theater professional. I know that a lot of people, um, because it was a, for many years a vocational program, more or less, you would go there, you would learn how to be a theater technician, you'd get some technical direction, some production management, stage management, maybe some, uh, some arts management experience, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but uh, the expectation was you'd come out as a technician. Um, and, uh, you know, there were opportunities to design, there were opportunities to, 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 to be a leader within that context. Um, how do you approach, uh, like, it's not just about downloading knowledge. Right. You're kind of creating people who are going to go on in their careers, and people have that expectation when they come out of that. Right. Uh, to sort of, well, now I'm done. Like, I've right. done my training. Right. I can start working, you know. And okay. they, there's, I'm good to go. Yeah, the apprenticeship program, uh, the apprenticeship model is a bit something you make up on the fly. So uh, in so the school you, or out in the school or out of the school? Out, like outside. We, there was a bit of a there was a bit of apprenticeship. I think we were there. You had people who were mentoring you, right? Right. Um, but it wasn't really a true apprenticeship program, right? It wasn't. You were learning a bunch of knowledge, and then you had to sort of create that when you left. You would so, uh, assist assist do small shows, get onto the larger venues. How do you um, like? First of all, how have things changed? How has your approach to downloading that knowledge in the 1980s changed to now? Is it the same process? What are you trying to create when someone comes out of theater school? OK, so I think specifically what developed organically, uh, particularly with Tanit and, and me, and we mourn her passing because she was a fabulous teacher, um, is I think that, that what coalesced around it, and certainly with, with Caroline here and Pablo here, is that, that this school has, it teaches production through the optics of design. I don't think we're at the point where we can be, call ourselves a design school per se, just because of money and time and supporting the performers and sort of the, the, how the bigger machine works. But I think that's what it evolved to, that, that the, and that that helped connect people no matter which area of the industry they thought they were going into, whether it be management, production, working as unionized labor, you know, wardrobes, whatever. Mm -hmm. But to have a sense of what is the, what are the foundations of what is going into putting this stuff on stage and supporting the performers to the best of our ability? Yeah, it does, does. that does that answer the question? It does. It does strike me that it is interesting that in most theater schools, I think in Canada, that the performance is kind of the star of the show. I mean, yeah. literally and figuratively within the academic kind of program, and that technical theater. Uh, is there because, hey, we have this opportunity to also teach technicians and designers. I, I think it's even kind of worse, and maybe we could, you know, over alcohol discuss this with people from the other schools, but I know at National Theatre School, there was a very articulated book on how to train actors, and the section on production was two paragraphs long. 
And, you know, from talking to people, and I think the agenesis here, because, you know, once the county council came on board and theater became an, a, a possibility as a profession in this country, that the focus was getting performers, dancers, actors, singers. Oh, I guess we need to have some stuff for them staged around. So we better do some, we, we better have some people who can do that kind of work. And so at National Theatre School, which started its production program after the acting program, is my memory, bang up against Expo 67, all the talented people disappeared to that. I think the same thing happened in this school in the early years. People, Rob Thompson, you know, you can, the folks who are here disappeared very quickly to work in the industry. And so it's, it's sort of an always an add-on. It was interesting when I went to visit Rob in Pittsburgh and Pablo's school in uh, Ohio to see what an American, how an American university approaches it and the, the pluses and minuses of that. Mm. I mean, Pittsburgh has an astonishing amount of money, but on the other hand, it costs $75,000 for, inclu well, including, including res, to go to first year. Yeah, sharp intake of breath. Um, <laughs> right? So lots of resources, huge amount of staff, uh, the staff do a lot of the work, and that was one of the things that bothered me at National Theatre School, was that there were staff who were building the costumes, and I had a mm -hmm. colleague who'd gone in a few years after me who wanted to learn how to be a cutter. And uh, the head of design at the time, his philosophy was, well, my designers should not have to, be, have, not have to suffer with students who are learning how to build costumes. So we will have professional costume builders. And so what attracted me very much about this school was that everybody had to do everything, including costumes, because my family were from the needle trades. My grandparents' uh, father's side, they worked in the sweatshops. My grandfather was a furrier. My father worked with them for a while. I grew up with sewing machines. And so I understood their importance. And so to come to a school that taught all of that struck me as, as, as really good. But the, the sense that I had was that people didn't as I came to watch the shows happening, that people didn't have, a, have the best sense of how to deal with themselves on stage. And Peter Fleming has told me that when he was the technician here at this theater, they used to flee when the school came in because it was so disorganized. And so I thought that, it, that that was something that needed to up its game. And certainly when I came in full time, that's when Sholemization started because um, <laughs> It, it needed it. I mean, it got to the point where I was a little too aggressive and people would avoid me in the halls. So I started dialing it down. I said, okay, I've made my point, and then would wait for people to say, I think this show needs a little bit of help, and then I would come in and do my thing. I was does, struck, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I was always struck by how long it took to do things here, but yes. in retrospect, I mean, it has to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I was working in, um, as, a, as an IA tech down in uh, Kitchener in a giant venue. We would do like load-ins of the New York Opera in a day and then do the show and get out of there. Yeah. Uh, and it seemed like it was easy. And we'd come here and we'd spend six weeks teching a, a play and go, why, how, how come it takes right. six yeah. weeks? But it has to because everyone yeah. has to learn their craft right. and how to work here. So um, here, here's a little anecdote. Is Joe Patrick with us? Did he make it? Okay, so Joe was helping me on the... The, um, the dance gala that I used to do. I'm pretty sure you said this. And uh, it was an IE crew, and we're setting up, and I'm loading in five electrics, 200 lights in five hours, focusing in five hours, using every trick that I knew. And he said, wow, 
you can fly stuff and hang lights at the same time. <laughs> and certainly when you have not worked on a stage before, to watch something fly out is magic, right? So everybody stops and watches that. Um, but to watch a crew, and I've just spent the last week with Fall for Dance loading into the Sony Humming, what's it called this week? What's it, what's it, Matt, what's it called this week? Meridian Hall, but that's different than the Meridian Art Center up on, yeah, okay, fine. Um, uh, and just watching, you know, a crew, not quite, no, you know, like just doing this naturally because that's what they do. Uh, an instructive thing for me working, so Pierre Trudeau, so Dad Trudeau came to visit the National Ballet. <laughs> Uh, when I was there and came with his security detail, and I didn't hear this directly, I heard it, I think, from stage management, but the, uh, the RCMP guys were astonished that the crew knew what to do without being told on a scene change. Because, you know, they're working military, top down, you, you wait for your instruction, you do something. So to watch these people without any instruction do this big scene change, or apparently without instruction, was astonishing to them. And so I've been musing about the how do we teach what is essentially controlled anarchy and, and give it, you know, like just the setup here, because we did the loadout of Fall for Dance, and, you know, I came in with all my paperwork and all that stuff, but all the little anarchic moments that happen, is that the training for that is you just have to do it by the pound. It's like, you know, 10,000 hours. And so a school can only go so far to be able to give you those foundation skills, because then you're going to have to go out and, and then... So people talk about having to relearn it in the industry. I think that this school has been very successful in giving people industry-level experience to the best that it can within a school environment. So we're a producing company in a school, in a university, and all of those things bang into each other really badly, as everybody knows. Um, Ash Sampson, if she's here, talked about the dilemma that students didn't have the chance to learn the arc of working a four or five hour call because, oops, I've got to go to my class, right? And so people visit other schools where they can, like certainly the colleges, they can shut down the academic classes for a four week period. That was my experience at the theater school. We all went and lived in the theater for two weeks and put the show up. And so the challenges that the students here face are substantial, but from what I've heard, and what I know, our students go out and hit the ground running and are ready to go. I certainly felt well prepared. I think my cohort in 1994 would probably agree. Everyone worked in the business. We were also working outside of the school. Yeah. Um, occasionally, uh, to sort of, <clears throat> <laughs> even though we weren't allowed. Yeah. And and just to say that the the other thing, and there are some people here that the strength of the school to me is the professionals who have come in teaching part time at atrociously low salaries. I can say that now because I'm not employed here anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what's given this school its depth. And so people can connect with, with you know, students who can connect with people who are working in the industry. People make connections, get jobs. I know that when I was teaching, all I had to do was say, and the show I'm working on now, and if people were sleeping or all that stuff would be, you know, bolt right up to attention because it made it visceral. And so once I began teaching here full time, it was really fascinating. The phone stopped ringing like that. So I don't know if the word got out or I'd run my course. Um, so that as I developed, you know, improved all the projects, I would build in all those stupid little roadblocks that you would find in the industry and would build them in and then you would have to solve them. 
And? <laughs> I'm sure we loved it every time. It happens. There's something we embraced as right. part of the experience. Right. Of... Yes, yes, exactly. <clears throat> okay, so uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about specifically with the philosophy of teaching before we go on to arts management? Yeah, sure. Like, okay, so, how do you so, approach? so my, the philosophy that I developed was I want to teach everything that I know, but that's not possible. I also want to teach all the things that I wish somebody had taught me. Oh, that hurt. Gee, hope not to do that again. Uh, and rolling those two things together, come up with a list of what are the essential things that need to be taught so that when the student fails, as we all have and we all will and all do, that they can get up, wipe their slightly snotty, bloody nose, stagger forward and solve the problem. So figuring out what those things are so that then people can build their own knowledge base with those small things. Um, as Ira said, thank you, Ira, uh, always support the student, particularly when they're crashing and burning, because that's what a school is for. Uh, as Peter Fleming and I would talk about, you know, the, the student has the right to fail, and that that's really, really important, and that, that, gets re that gets very difficult when you're putting up a show. Back to the dilemma is a school in a producing, you know, producing company in a school in a university. Um, there was something else I was going to say about that, but... Let me check the script that you wrote. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I think that that's right. That I, will, right. I will respond to that and say that I, I, the, uh, it, you can't, you're right, you can't teach <clears throat> Excuse me. You can't teach everybody everything they have to know from right. day one, but you can teach them how to solve the problem. Yeah. Um, and I think the greatest uh, aspect is teaching people to embrace ambiguity and change, uh, and build a contingency. And I think that's the one thing that you pointed out, especially in lighting class. I remember learning so effectively is that. Yes, that's a great idea. But what's your second and third choice? When you get led down, what did you say? Led down, oh, the, led down the garden, garden path. path. That's a Rob Thompson. Yes. I think we'll have to thank Rob Thompson for that. Being led down the garden path by the director. For a lot, yes. for a lot, for a lot. Here's what we want to do. Oh, no, that's not what we wanted at all. Who, you know, we've all been there. Yeah. yeah. I used that as a verb. I got garden path again today. I couldn't <laughs> right. believe it. And does that happen in the medical profession? Um, yeah. It happens everywhere. Everyone's happens got, everywhere. Everyone's okay. got ideals about how things should work. It's a bit more structured than the medical profession. Right. But, uh, you have to have a good idea of what your next, when your next backup is, especially you know when someone is bleeding in front of you because of something you did because it didn't work out. <laughs> and so, so it's that, a risk of every surgery bleeding. We have you sign the paper. Come on. Right. <clears throat> and and so you know I look at what Michael's transitioned to total real life, as opposed to what we do, which is total pretend, but we take it oh so seriously. I'm going to challenge you right there, because yeah. nothing, and I had this experience when I went into paramedicine, uh, uh, I liked paramedicine because, and there's, a, there's several people who went to Ryerson who actually are paramedics now as well, Sergio Calderon, uh, and now I'm blanking, Sarah, Sarah. Scott McLeod, Scott yes, McLeod. yes, thank you, Jordan. Um, lots of people, right? And it, it's like being backstage on the city. You get to see things that no one else sees. But I never felt as stressed out most days on the job as a paramedic as I felt in the tech week getting up to, <laughs> getting to opening because you couldn't push the date. You can't just, you know, well, we'll just, you know, in paramedicine, well, we'll just take you to the hospital. Like, <laughs> get in my ambulance and we'll drive there, right? Um, there's not, you can't, you can't make that choice. And, uh, and so having a contingency... Uh, and theater, like, it is stressful, and especially we've heard about the closing of Theater Ontario this week, 
the, one of the uh, terrible, you know, uh, uh, dead bodies from the cuts of arts, uh, of arts funding. I mean, it's not, it hasn't closed yet, but there's going to be a vote on October 26th, I think. Uh, it's probably going to be closed down. We deal with all this stress all the time, and I think that the ambiguity and the uncertainty are, if you can teach people to embrace that and, uh, and be able to uh, make good art despite of it, uh, I think that, that you've done everything you can yeah, do to teach right. people. Uh, a little anecdote. So I, as I mentioned, I used to do those galas up at the, whatever it's called this week. Um, and I came into the booth, and the papers were kind of tossed all over, and the vibe in the room was really like it, the previous show had not gone well. And I said, so who was here on the last show? They said, oh, Michael Cruz. So I called him up. And he said, and you said, I'm done with lighting. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, I knew I was going to be done. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was the opera. Was that the opera? Something. I can't. I don't even know uh, what yeah, the project yeah, was. Yeah, I think it was the opera. Yeah, I was. I was done. It was. It was too. It was just too stressful. Uh, I was looking for new opportunities as well. But um, there's a. I. I don't know for people who stayed in the business in the last 15 years since I've left it. Uh, 10 years, 12 years. Uh, I don't know how you exist every day because it's a freaking challenge um, with budget cuts and uh, more struggles than we ever had. Um, it is a noble profession, and I'm. I have a lot of, I think if you listen to the show, I have a lot of concern about the future of theater and, and certainly theater design. Right. Um, okay, let's talk about arts management. Okay. Something yeah. that I, the arts management course I took, I forget who taught it. Paul uh, Eck. Paul Eck? Was it Paul Eck? Yeah, who couldn't think, be here tonight. He have sent his apologies, yeah. I think that we all dreaded it because we all come and, oh, now I have to learn about managing something. I don't want to manage something. I want to go build something. I want right. to go design yeah, yeah. something. Right. Um, tell us about your thoughts on arts management right. and how it intersects with right. the problem okay. that we're dealing with every day. Okay. So, uh, certificate from National Theatre School, job at Ryerson, have to have an MA. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Literally. Um, talk to Ira, points me in the direction of interdisciplinary studies up at York. Thank you, Peter. Is Phil Silver with us? No, couldn't make it. Um, sorry? Yeah, okay. Uh, help pave the way. Um, despite what Ira said about how welcomed I was, when I came with my pitiful proposal, with no bibliography or anything, and the person who was interviewing me looked me in the eye and said, do you really want to do this? <laughs> so I lied, and I said yes. <laughs> So it was, it was beyond stressful process, but, but in retrospect, it was a fabulous thing that happened, particularly because then, as this place was becoming, from Polytech to Polytech University to University Polytech to a university, uh, that I could, having been quasi-academic, that I could help people with that whole weird world that gets, we're grafted to. I was intrigued by, I'd always been intrigued, every, actually from National Theatre School on, the inability uh, to have a frank discussion about ideas to resources. Well, if you tried a little harder, if you were more creative, or, you know, all those conversations that, that we've had, that now that I have the many years of experience, I know how to be in those conversations. But I thought, this is a bizarre world. Well, remind me of the anecdote about film. We'll talk about yes. that in a minute. Yeah. So I wanted to know where this, com this came from, and uh, I went on a treasure hunt, and Peter said, let's start with just read everything you can. So I did, and it was largely about the history of producing in this country, 
And I think we've lost the notion of producing. My theory is that because the Canadian Theatre Agreement talks about the theatre, what is the theatre? Is it the building? Is it the board that we never see? Like, what is the theatre? And we've lost the idea that there's somebody responsible for putting the pieces of the puzzle together, and that is the producer. That's coming back now. Mitchell Marcus has done an amazing job uh, of being artistic producer. So he doesn't direct the shows, but he puts the pieces together. So I started looking at the history of, of business management for theatre, and I ended up looking at what I call the development of community and policy from 1955, when equity comes back, uh, to 1979, when there was an initiative called the 1812 Committee to, that went to the federal government to say, the economy's going to the tank, you can't cut funding to arts. And government said yes. You said you are right, we won't do that. I think it was um, John, what's his name, liberal guy. Turner? John Turner. Yeah. John Turner, I think, said yes. Uh, and I thought, this is really interesting. This is, a, this is a community and industry disappeared during the Depression, other than a couple of bright lights. Nothing really happened in the war. Lots of amateur theater, but professional theater comes back in 55 when equity comes back to this country, and then Canada Council, and for those who know your history, and then everything grows. And now they've got enough clout to go politically to say to the government and say, hey, you, you know, we are a viable industry. So that was my bracket. I looked at the policies of the Canada Council, looked at the development of PAC, looked at the development of equity, the CTA. And out of that, much to mine, and I think Peter's surprise, came that the industry writ large, so the, the, the industry, the, the, the professions, the councils and the schools, that whenever the money got tight, the first thing they got cut was management, which is counterintuitive because that's when you really do need your, need your management. And then I looked at where management had been taught in this country, and there have been some attempts, but they died on the vine. There, in fact, was a whole course in management at Ryerson in the calendar, three years, all that stuff, and it withered away because they couldn't get enough bumps and seats. And at the time, we are doing the curriculum review, and I go, oh, this is about money, duh. I've owned homes, and this is about the management of money. And I thought, well, we're now reviewing the curriculum. We could nest this more into the whole process, because correctly or incorrectly, I perceived that the people learning management were kind of marginalized in terms of the process. There wasn't anything really for them to do on creating the shows. So then they're doing their stuff in the classroom. So I started looking at ways that I could integrate management into more of the courses to pull it as a thread through. The reason being that I had also at that time, I was negotiating for ADC with PACT. And uh, my feeling was that they were not understanding the process and how it worked on stage. Uh, although uh, Colleen Blake was the one who came in with the, with the main schedule in terms of here are the deadlines on, on her side, but that it was always a, f a fight to get them to understand the ideas to resources equation and that we as designers were part of that management process. And they would not accept that. Their idea of management was who gets to hire and fire. And I thought, if that's your definition of management, then boy, we're really in a lot of trouble. So I thought if we could train, oh, and the, the other piece was that there was, uh, up at York, there was a MBA in arts management, and the theater practitioners at the time said, please don't put it in a business school. And that's what they did. 
And so I thought, how could we make that better at Ryerson with the resources that we have available, and how could we thread the idea of management through the whole process with the idea of training arts managers who understand how this stupid machine works, stupid in, in the most affectionate way that I could say that, uh, and then manage it to the best of their ability with the resources and all that kind of stuff. And based on the graduates who've come through that and, and gone on to that, I think it's been you know, successful. And I think it's really important that everybody who is not management understands what management has to go through. Because boy, that is the hardest piece. And so for those people who were the managers of you know, the SIT project, oh, actually, I have a funny story. So I had a second, a first year, a first year come to me last year and say, you know, it was really hard being a production manager. I said, well, what was it like? She said, well, I just kept kind of pushing and chasing people. And I said, yeah. <laughs> that's the gig. That's the gig. That's, that's what it is. Oh, and then another student in an interview who said, well, I want to be a production manager, so I'm in charge. And I, <laughs> and I said, well, no, the production manager is the person who's least in charge. And her face fell, poor dear. It was just like, you know, like I, I just upset her whole apple cart. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I think that's terrific. I think upsetting apple carts is what right. we should do. Yes, right. Yeah, I think so. Um, um, let's, uh, we're getting close to the half hour. Right. Uh, let's talk about what you're going to do next. Oh, okay. I think okay. that's probably because we're all dying to know. Do you just retire to your comfy chair and... Read a book? What, what um, are you doing? What, like what, product, what projects are you I, doing? I only work best with external pressures. Yes. Yeah. I understand. Um, my poor wife who's sitting here. Um, uh, <laughs> so I've, I've had a couple of jobs, which is nice. Uh, we're planning a trip to Taiwan and Japan, which is fabulous. I'm hoping to do more scuba diving in February and you know those times. Um, I had an interesting experience again for someone who was a production person. Um, worked when I was doing not for profit. I was staff. Very little contact with the board, other than my first year at Calgary, where there was this total meltdown, and we had these meetings with the board to try and put the company back together again. So um, I think a number of people know the Pia Bauman School of Dance and Creative Movement out in the West End. And they are threadbare. There is no other way of describing it. They are threadbare. And they had to move digs from one facility to another. And I got a call from a member of the board who's an old personal friend. Could I help him with the lighting of their new dance studio? And they were going in. So back to the, the, uh, the factory project, the TD factory project, they were going into an old uh, munitions factory uh, at Lansdowne and Bloor. And so it was all that kind of stuff. But I came in. And here were the board, because it's a, it's a not-for-profit, board-driven, and they were making the decisions. Some of them not quite the right decision, but just working really, really hard. And I went, oh, I get it. They're in charge. And so all of the vague stories that I'd heard about the board choices, this and that, the other things, some good, some bad, suddenly came completely into perspective in terms of when you're working in the not-for-profit sector, the board are, is the one in charge, and the buck stops with them. And even John Wilbur talking about how when he was at Shaw Festival, some things that he would talk about with Christopher Newton would end up at board level. And I was puzzled at the time, like, like why would that happen? Because it involves the spending of money and the choices. So uh, never too old to learn. Always something more you know, interesting to learn. Well, that's great. 
we've come to the end of our time. Okay. Um, I just want to say that my time at Ryerson was formative. Right. Uh, and you were certainly a giant part of that. So well, thank, thank you, you so much. I have everyone here who's enjoyed being sholemized and, and right. being pushed to think about all the details. Okay. Thank right. you so much. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. So let's, let's hold applause. Let's hold applause. There's, there's, going to be a mo- there's going to be a moment for lots of applause. We have a little finale for you. But before that, I do want to thank Carolyn O'Brien, uh, Peter Fleming, and a big shout-out to Peter Fleming that when I came here full-time and was frothing at the mouth about why is this like this, um, that it, he gave me at least context, not always to my satisfaction, but at least gave me context, <laughs> and that he is very much of the threat of this school. Uh, Scott, Scott Martin, Alex Gilbert for being shown too, Bonnie Thompson and the, the um, student union for the support for putting all this together. So thank them so much for that. So we have we have a little finale. I'm going to describe it. Oh, sorry, one more thing. Yes. Okay. There's always one more thing. There's always one more thing. Okay. Yeah. There's a couple couple things. Okay. Do you want me to leave the stage or? No. Then you better come into the good light at least. You go. God. Thank you very much. Yep. Oh, thank you. Oops. Sorry. Oh gosh. It's like I've never been in a theater before. So we're, we're jumping into the middle. We are, we are a little bit unscheduled, uh, but uh, we wanted to take a minute and uh, ag- acknowledge. Uh, we've had a lot of fun. We've had a lot of fun. I think we have a lot more fun uh, things to say. Um, when we, but we wanted to, I wanted to take a minute and uh, be just the tiniest bit sentimental. I had the absolute privilege of being in Sholem's classes, and then I had the extreme honor of getting to come back and work with him. It has been a really wonderful thing to be on both sides of that relationship. Thank you, Sholem. Uh, when we started talking about things we wanted to make sure we did for this uh, final beautiful celebratory moment, uh, a lot of people reached out and they started asking, is there a scholarship fund? Is there something I can contribute to? Where can I do something to acknowledge the impact that Sholem has had on my career, my life, my time as a student, my time as a current student for those of you who are in last year's class? Uh, and we didn't have an actual answer for that but we made one up (laughs) because that is what we do. And we have learned from Sholem, you can make these things up and you can believe your own fiction. And so what we, I'm joking, but what we've done is um, we've put together what we are, we've had trouble naming it. So for a while it was the tissue box fund. So you need to understand. The unused tissue. The unused tissue. So one year I got the tissue box award for the best listener. And then we thought about uh, some kind of nutritious snack funding, but that didn't qu- feel quite right. And then we started thinking about what's, what's the thing we really wanted to hang on to. And it's Sholem's absolute generosity with his time, with his resources, how many of us he sat with when we didn't get it the 17th time, because we were so far off the train of knowledge, the train had left, and we were just sort of sitting there wondering if it was coming back. <laughs> And there came Sholem, a little handcart, being like, okay, let's do it again. <laughs> Sholem 
has left such an interesting, specific hole in our system right now. And while I know we're doing really well this year and we're figuring it out, goodness, you took care of a lot of very strange things. <laughs> How many times do you walk through the student production office and stop and come back and say, have you thought about? <laughs> and so to recognize Sholem's generosity with his time, his resources, his uh, desire to make sure that we had thought absolutely all the way through everything. We wanted to put a fund together that is going to be Sholem Student SOS Fund. <laughs> there is no one category that we can put that in because Sholem was generous with his teaching and his knowledge and his time and his support to students both uh, in their academics and very much personally. And so whether it's buying more Kleenex for the office because it's interview season, or whether it's helping a student who can't necessarily come up with enough money to buy the lighting textbook and would otherwise maybe drop the class, or if it's just another set of speed wrenches because, man, those go missing really fast. <laughs> We're putting this parkan out beside the guest book, and anyone who feels like it, toss something in. We're going to use it as the Sholem Discretionary Student Savior Fund. Can I talk about the speed wrenches? No, we're running out of time. Running out of time, that's fine, yeah, that's fine. Oh, is it? Okay, fine. And that was lighting designer Sholem Dolgoy at the celebration of his retirement, September 23rd, 2019. Next time, an interview with Head of Design of the University of Calgary, April Vixco. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with a voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on patreon.com. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. <laughs>